welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan the Five Names Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy the DDR King Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you the DDR King? I don't know that they do, John. I'm pretty sure it's just you who calls me that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jeremy, why do I call you the DDR King then? Well, I'm pretty sure it's been something like, I don't know, 13 years since you've seen me play Dance Dance Revolution at an arcade. Um, But I guess I must have really wowed you back then with my, you know, Japanese weird, you know, song dancing. Uh, because you're still talking about it to this day. Although I will have you know, I can't go right now because of the coronavirus lockdowns, but I am dying to go back to Round One Arcade in Tukwila. Uh, shout outs to Round One, because they have the newest version of DDR. And dude, it's a bit of a drive for me, but I, I have a blast every time I go. <laughs> well, okay, so maybe I'll just clarify for the audience that that's why I call you the DDR King. Because <laughs> you like drive a distance to play DDR. Well, I mean, okay, I, I guess I can't argue with that. That's a, <laughs> that's a fair point. Okay, well, what about you? Why do they call you, Jonathan, the five names Van Shank? Well, well, Jeremy, the, the joke here is that uh, I have five names. <laughs> yeah, so um, so I, I was born Jonathan David Van Shank, only, only uh, four names in this case. But when I got married to my wife, uh, we, we really liked her maiden name, Bammer. Uh, and so we wanted to try to find a way to kind of keep that name going on. And, you know, we didn't really want to do the hyphenation thing. Uh, because it's a little unsustainable after the first generation, you know, it's like after <laughs> a little while you got like people walking around with like six or seven names all hyphenated together. So, so we, we wanted to keep the name, but not do the hyphenation thing. So we decided to uh, uh, take Bammer and make it a middle name for both of us. Uh, and in my case, I decided to just take it as a second middle name. So now my name is Jonathan David Bammer Van Shank. And I mean, JDB Van Shank is, oh, I just, hmm. That's high quality stuff right there. So I'll tell you, man, I like really married into this one. Well, honestly, John, I think it's a bit of a missed opportunity to have made both of your last names Bam Shank. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that, Jeremy, because Bam Shank was actually me and my, well, now wife's couple name back in high school when we were still dating. Uh, but anyway, OK, this chatting has gone on way too long. Let's get to some scripture. Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. So, Jeremy, I was reading in Proverbs the other day, and I came across this verse uh, in chapter 19, specifically verse 18. Here, let me read it for you in the KJV. It says, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, this is a really interesting verse, and uh, I, I see people using it in a number of different ways that I'm... And I'm not totally sure that's really what the verse is intending. So here, let me give you some examples. So one one way that I see this verse getting used is by uh, like local church bodies. Uh, And specifically, they'll use this verse to say that they need, you know, some kind of like specific or unique vision to be given to them by God. You know, this is usually like sometime around like January 1st or, you know, something like that. And kind of the argument is like, oh, we like need this particular vision for our specific church or else, you know, we're going to like die out or, you know, some, some tragic thing will happen. I'm, I'm not totally sure what. 
Or I've also seen people use it in a pretty individualistic fashion as well, where rather than it being something for the whole church, it's a, you know, it's a vision for your particular life or this a particular word that God's going to give, you know, just to you, um, you, know, you know, something in that fashion. Now, there's, there's also kind of a, a slightly more toxic way that this verse gets used, um, where, I, you know, I see like pastors who will utilize this verse as a, a way of, of trying to well, essentially lord their power over their flock, where, you know, the, the argument goes something like this, you know, like God has given me this particular vision for my church here. And, you know, you can either get with the, the, the vision that we have, or you can, you know, kind of get out of here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially this opportunity to kind of consolidate power um, and, you know, exert that over people. And, you you know, and I, I th really think that this subject needs a lot of sensitivity because I, I like, I think those cases are actually pretty rare. Uh, and, you know, most of the time, like, I, like, I don't think that people are actually have any nefarious intent or something when they're, when they're utilizing this verse, but it, you know, it does kind of bother me that, uh, uh, you know, people might like utilize this verse in a way that the, that's not really the way that the author was intending it to be understood or used. And so I, like, I guess kind of my encouragement is, you know, let's dig into this verse and see, you know, what is it that the Bible's actually trying to tell us so that we can be putting ourselves under like, you know, that which God has given to us. Well, John, I've definitely heard uh, similar um, arguments, if not literally the same exact words that you just uh, quoted for me. Um, things like get a vision for your life, right? Uh, find God's call on your life. Totally. And I think you're right that, that some sensitivity is required because I think sometimes what people mean by this can be pretty uh, good and, uh, you know, even positive. But uh, I agree with you that I am sometimes bothered. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hear you, Jeremy, about people using this verse and, and what they mean is, is actually a, a really positive thing. But it, like, again, I just sort of come back to this encouragement of, you know, if, if what you're teaching is true and if it's biblical, then, you know, there's nothing to be lost by digging into what the verse really says. Because, you know, if, if, if what the verse says is what you're saying it is, then, you know, digging into it's only going to reinforce your point. Well, I'm glad that you said as much, John, because I'm afraid that we are going to have to dig into the context of this verse and figure out what's going on. So you know what it's time for. Oh, yes, Jeremy. It is time to put that verse back into context or so help me. It's time for the meat. Well, one thing that uh, the perceptive listener may have noticed is that you quoted the verse in the King James. And, uh, you know, why did you do that? <laughs> I won't make uh, the listener wait for the answer. The major problem with this interpretation actually is the translation itself. Uh, the best way to start with looking at a verse like this might be to just read it in some different translations to see the way that other Christians have understood the Hebrew. So pay careful attention to the different words um, that are used instead of the word vision in some of these other translations. Uh, first, let's try out the NIV. It says, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. So that one uses the word revelation. How about the ESV, the English standard? It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. How about the New King James Version? This one says, where there is no revelation. Once again, just like the NIV, using the word revelation. 
And in the New uh, Living Translation, it says, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. So that one, using a little bit of a different translation for both wisdom and also this phrase, cast off restraint. And then lastly, we have the New American Standard, which says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. So the New American Standard actually has the same translation for that word um, as the King James. So there's a little bit of a survey of the different ways this verse is translated. You'll notice actually that the word perish is not in any of these verses, um, which was originally in the King James. It says, um, where there is no vision, the people perish. But all of these translations say people cast off restraint, or they are unrestrained, or they run wild. So we'll see that there's some different things going on here. Um, Ordinarily on this show, <laughs> we would immediately take a look at the context of the verse we're discussing. So, you know, we would look at the next verse and the verse before and the book that we're in. But with Proverbs, the context works a bit looser. There is structure and order to the Proverbs, but they're also sort of in their own little contained units. And they can be taken on their own better than other places in the Bible. So instead of talking about, uh, you know, what's going on around Proverbs 29, 18, I actually think it's going to be more helpful this time to talk about biblical languages and two particular Hebrew words in this verse. And then we're going to talk about just the book of Proverbs in general and some smart strategies for approaching uh, interpreting the Proverbs. So now hold on. If you're thinking this is going to be a long, boring discussion of like Hebrew syntax and nerdy stuff, do not turn off this podcast. Bear with us. <laughs> we are lay people and we're not pastors. That is right. We are not experts. <laughs> so we want this podcast to be for other lay people. This is not going to be like an hour long uh, lecture on the fine points of Hebrew semantics. We're going to keep it short and simple. And just in general on this podcast, we only want to discuss original languages when it's you know, really crucial to the interpretation. Uh, partially because we don't want to give the misconception that you need to know Greek or Hebrew to properly understand the scriptures. Um, but in this case, really, especially since there's not much context to discuss with a random proverb, we're going to look at the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and as John pointed out, we aren't experts. So I'm going to be very clear about citing my sources. I have taken Hebrew and Greek um, at seminary um, and at Bible college. So I do know something of what I'm talking about. Um but John, on the other hand, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have like zero training in biblical languages. <laughs> so the the point being, um, I'm going to be depending heavily on commentaries and citing my sources pretty closely, just so you know where I'm getting my ideas from. Um, and also, uh, just as in general, when people discuss biblical languages, you should be skeptical of the claims that are made even if the person making the claim is a total expert. Uh, Greek and v Hebrew are valuable to learn, but believe me, <laughs> I've, um, I've read many commentaries enough to know that there's many educated people who have an axe to grind and they absolutely can and will find ways to mangle the text to make it say what they want it to say. Um, <laughs> there's some very smart people who will say amazingly foolish things that contradict the unanimous, more or less unanimous belief of the church for thousands of years over some really random Greek semantic point. So all this is to say, um, now that I now that I've told you we're not experts and you shouldn't listen anyways, <laughs> um, we should look at these Hebrew words. 
But real quick, I do want to jump in before we get too deep into the Hebrew, and that is to just give a piece of encouragement to, you know, probably most of our listeners who are like me and they don't have any, you know, formal training in biblical languages or anything like that. And I just want to give them this piece of encouragement that, you know, like Jeremy is saying, knowing Hebrew is something that's helpful, but it's, you know, by no means necessary that, you know, we don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to know what the Bible says, you know, we just want to be careful that we're not sowing distrust of English translations. Because, I mean, on the whole, the English translators of, you know, the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, they do an excellent job rendering into English for us, you know, what it is that the authors are trying to communicate. And so, you know, just, just that piece of encouragement that, you know, in, like in the main, your English translation is going to do an awesome job of telling you like what it is that the Bible is saying. And it's just kind of in this, you know, pretty particular case that we're appealing to the biblical languages. And there, there really isn't anything that's, you know, not in the other English translations here. It, it really is kind of just a, a, a artifact of the King James that we're kind of trying to, to, to piece together here. Absolutely. And even though we're going to be dunking a bit on the King James Version, you know, we're, we're still friends with, with the King James Version. We stay in touch. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so we're going to criticize a little bit of its uh, choices in this verse here. But really, as John said, English translations rock. And also there are no major doctrines of scripture that hinge on like one Greek or Hebrew word. All the important stuff in scripture is taught everywhere. And, you know, multiple different books by different authors using different genres of literature. So, you know, you're not going to be deceived just because there's one verse that's um, that's not quite right. But so all that being said. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimer over. Disclaimer over. There's a long disclaimer. All that to say um, the, the, the long and short of it is Hebrew and Greek are super valuable, but they're not everything. OK, so. Moving on. So the first word, obviously, the more important one we want to look at here is the word for vision. And in, in Hebrew, this word is chazon. And uh, so I'm just going to read a definition from um, a dictionary by Kleins. It's called the Concise Dictionary of Classical Hebrew. It's a really good resource for um, kind of introductory Hebrew students. And uh, it has two kind of related meanings here. First, we see uh, the definition of a vision either associated with prophecy or revelation or a dream. And one example of that is like 1 Samuel 3, 1. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And that's when Samuel is ministering for uh, the priest Eli. That's after the prophets Moses and Joshua have gone, but it's before the era of the kings and the later prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So there's not, you know, an ongoing revelation to the same degree that there is at earlier and later times in Israel's history. So simple enough, right? A, a prophetic revelation. The second definition given by Kleins is a revelatory word or inspired saying as found in the titles of prophetic books. So, for example, Isaiah 1.1, the title of the book of Isaiah says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it's interesting that here you see the word vision used just to describe words, just inspired scripture. Um, the book of Isaiah is mostly straightforward prophecy. It doesn't include crazy visions like we think of from the book of Revelation or maybe the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. So um, this is not, you know, when the word vision, I think we maybe sometimes have in our head 
um, you know, crazy uh, psychedelic visuals <laughs> and um, insane stuff like uh, we might we might see in Revelation. Um, not only is this in the book of Isaiah, but also the first verse of Obadiah and Nahum use Chazon this way. Uh, I've got a few other verses here. John, do you want to read these, the Jeremiah and Daniel verses? Yeah, so starting in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter in verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So you see, the idea here is that the, the words of these false prophets who are, are lying about what God is saying is they're being called these, these visions, these prophetic words that they're giving. Um, but kind of the, the point here is that it is something that's like not from God. Then in Daniel chapter 1 verse 17, we see Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, this is a more kind of traditional understanding of the term vision as, you know, maybe us modern readers might think of it, where Daniel, you know, he did interpret dreams. And so there, there's kind of this idea of, you know, something of an abnormal, maybe visual experience or component to it. And so here the idea of Daniel's interpreting of visions or his understanding of visions is kind of connected with his ability to understand dreams as well. Uh, and in fact, that's kind of borne out a little bit later in the book of Daniel, that Daniel does have things that seem to be these kind of like visual things that he's actually seeing. And that's probably what's being referred to here. Yeah. So there we, we get some context that we see this word in. So what's Chazon all about? What does it mean? We can tell it has a, some range of meaning, but one thing it always includes is it has to do with prophets. Uh, the variety of translation choices we see, um, which we quoted earlier for Proverbs 29.18, is due to that, that range of meanings. So one translation will say vision, another prophetic vision, another revelation, and then the NLT, just a little looser of a translation, says divine guidance. But the point of the original Hebrew is not really super disputable. Chazon happens when the Lord speaks through a prophet. Um, the KJV and the NASB, the New American Standard, both just say vision, and that is the most straightforward way to translate chazon. But other translations have chosen different terms to be more specific in English that we're talking about a prophetic vision, uh, not maybe eyesight, which is an English definition of the word vision, and not uh, talking about you know your personal goals for your life or vision statements that organizations or businesses might make. Um, so my guess is, since prophets have visions, it ended up being used as a sort of catch-all term for various different ways that prophets might proclaim God's word. I'm not exactly sure of the entire etymological history of the word, but the point being um, that it has to do with prophets, and it has to do with the revelatory nature of what they speak. Whether that's in a more ecstatic visual experience, as in Revelation and Ezekiel, or it's just a straightforward word from the Lord, as in Isaiah. And another thing that's really interesting here is that the word vision is actually being put in direct parallel with this idea of keeping the law. That's, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish, but, you know, he that keeps the law, you know, blessed is he. Now, it, now this idea is it really kind of brings home the point that what this verse is talking about with vision really just like is scripture. And the reason why I 
you know, I'm arguing that is that any Jew who would be hearing this, you know, if he heard, if he heard keeping the law, he would immediately know that like, oh, that's like obviously referring to the books of Moses, you know, the law that Moses gave, you know, because Moses is, you know, like one of the first prophets. Uh, and so this idea of then the, the prophetic vision from earlier in the verse would then sort of entail all of then like the latter prophets of, you know, books like Isaiah or Jeremiah or, you know, things like this. And so, like, I think it's pretty clear from just the way that the proverb is constructed that this is really talking about scripture and in a, like a holistic sense of not just the, the books of the law, but also the, the prophetic books as well. And, you know, because that's great news for us because we still have preserved for us all of the words of the prophets, whether it's the the words of Moses that is, you know, given in law or it's, it's the words of Isaiah or the words of Jeremiah. Like we still have all of this preserved for us in scripture. Yes, that's a that's a great observation. Just the, the juxtaposition of vision with keeping the law. And certainly I think we're supposed to see this whole verse as about the Bible as a whole today. So what about the term that was translated as perish in the King James, but in the other translations is cast off restraint or run wild? Uh, that is a different Hebrew word. Um, it is yipara. And this is a much different beast than chazon. With chazon, we had different translations because the translators didn't agree on the best way to show the meaning in English. But with yipara, we have a little more trouble because there's disagreement over exactly what it means, even in Hebrew. And the reason why being that this is actually the only place in the Old Testament, the only verse you'll find this exact word. Um, now, it is uh, a form of a verb that we see in many other places in the Old Testament, just the normal verb para. And basically, para means letting go of something or releasing or being loosed. Um, sometimes it's used in the sense of like letting someone go out of control or spurning authority. Um, you know, sometimes in, like even in English, we have like the phrase you letting yourself go, you know, which evokes images of somebody who's maybe not working a job, but is sitting around all day watching Netflix, right? Um, eating things that aren't healthy for them. That's you're letting yourself go. Um, and so yipara, or I mean, I'm sorry, not yipara, but just the ordinary verb para means something along those lines. Um, this specific form of it, though, when we add the yi, para, um, it makes it a reflexive verb. So that would mean it's something along the lines of letting oneself go, or in the case of this verse, the people letting themselves go. Um, that's exactly what Kleins, who I mentioned earlier, that's exactly his definition, is letting oneself go. Um, so I think, though, that translators have decided to go with cast off restraint because that sort of evokes the meaning of that without, I mean, it makes it clearer in English. If it was to say where there is no prophetic vision, the people let themselves go. <laughs> that would be, I think, a little unclear. So I think the translators are using the context to determine that this is talking about like a moral letting yourself go, um, not keeping uh, track of the rules anymore. You just don't care. Um, you're casting off restraint. Um, and so it's interesting. There's there's some debate over whether that's good or not. Um, one thing that there isn't really a debate for is perish. There's not really any reason to think that the word means perish. There's like not any lexicon that will <laughs> that will demonstrate that. There's no evidence for that. So I'm not exactly sure why the King James translators chose that. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, we we just know that that's really not what it means. 
uh, with with more modern methods. But so uh, one interesting thing is uh, in the commentary by Dr. Bruce Waltke on the book of Proverbs, who, by the way, Dr. Waltke is is the best. He <laughs> he lives actually in the greater Seattle area. I literally met him because he, he knew one of my profs um, in Bible college uh, pretty well. So uh, love Dr. Waltke. His commentary on Proverbs is the best in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series. But he presents the argument in agreement with other commentators that fall into anarchy might actually be a good translation here. Um, so it's not just like you're casting off restraint, but utter unrestrained chaos and society breaks down. Um, so that's some of the why the, the other part of the verse has a bit of a difference in the translation. So we've examined the Hebrew evidence. We're done talking about uh, the Hebrew now. I think if we were to do like a uh, message style, Eugene Peterson paraphrase <laughs> of this verse, like not a translation, but just like my interpretation of the verse, it means something along these lines. Without heeding the prophetic word uttered by human voices through the Holy Spirit, society descends into chaos. But anyone who adheres to the teaching of the prophets will be blessed. I think that's what's going on here. So notice <laughs> what this doesn't have anything to do with. <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with a pastor's plans for how big he's going to grow his church. This doesn't have anything to do with, you know, um, us making plans um, about, you know, maybe where we're going to go to college or who we're going to marry or what sort of like accomplishments we want to achieve in life. And, you know, again, not that there's anything wrong with making goals um, or, you know, pastors having some sort of idea of where we're going as a church, but this is a very poor verse to, to use to demonstrate that. And it's kind of telling that they have to go to the King James Version in order to justify that idea. Most, you know, most pastors don't even use the King James anymore. So why are they switching translations to try to justify an idea they have? That's a little bit concerning to me. Yeah, Jeremy, and maybe just to bolster that point a little bit and add some some further clarification, you know, we're we're in no way saying that it's a bad thing to have a plan for your life, to have goals, to you know have a vision for where you want to see things going, or you know have a a vision for for how you want to be growing and developing your church. Uh, like, you know, we're not saying any of that, but really, what we're saying is that the the content of this verse is really good it's it's this wonderful message about how good the prophetic vision is for our lives and for our culture and for the church and you know so we we just really want to focus on the the good thing that this verse is saying rather than trying to kind of contort it to try to say something else that you know well it, it might be good but it's not really what the author was saying Certainly. Well, and especially when the verse is so relevant to what's going on now. I mean, how often do evangelicals <laughs> talk about stuff like, man, I'm really concerned about the way culture is going. Like, it seems that people don't don't uh, adhere to Christian values anymore or whatever. Um, you hear that a lot. And I think um, this verse helps diagnose the problem a little bit. Uh, we've forgotten the word. Uh, and um, we'll be blessed, though, if we adhere to it. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. But Hebrew aside, let's think about some other approaches to the Proverbs, and maybe that'll help bolster what we've already said. <clears throat> Again, we already mentioned that you shouldn't take our word for it when it comes to Hebrew or Greek or anyone else's word for it, but um, things should be able to be demonstrated aside from an appeal to Hebrew and Greek. So let's take a look at um, a concept called parallelism. 
Um, and parallelism, big old word, um, is a, a term that Bible scholars will use to talk about Hebrew poetry. And it's basically the way in which the first half of the proverb relates to the second half of the proverb. And it actually doesn't need to be in the book of Proverbs. It could be a part of the Psalms, pretty much any poetic content in the Old Testament. But so it's important to pay attention to parallelism. There's different ways that the two halves can relate. And many times the entire meaning of the proverb hinges on what kind of parallelism you think is being used in the proverb. Well, here, Jeremy, you, you keep using this word parallelism, but could, could we maybe get some examples so that we can see what, what this word actually means and, and how it actually plays out in the proverbs? Totally. Um, so I'm going to depend once again heavily on Dr. Waltke's work um, in his commentary, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, he, he mentions three types of parallelism. I will point out that there are other ones that have been proposed and that are used sometimes, but I think these are the three most helpful. So first we have what they call a synonymous parallelism. That's when the second half of the proverb shares the same thought as the first half and just restates it using different words. Um, anyone who's read the book of Proverbs just casually as your normal Bible reading, you've probably noticed this. Here's an example, Proverbs 12, 28. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. <laughs> now, if you're trying to be concise with, you know, not repeating yourself, that's a little silly. Well, of course, in the way of righteousness is life, then there's no death. Um, but the, the whole point of synonymous parallelism is to find creative ways to say the same thing twice. It's supposed to... I imagine the, the intent is to make it more memorable. Here's another example. Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. <laughs> so there we go. I mean, what is discipline or reproof different? And sometimes when, when people begin to interpret the Proverbs, they'll look at that and they'll be like, oh, well, the discipline must be different than reproof and despising must be different than being weary. Nope, not at all. It's the same thing said two times. <laughs> that's that's how it should be understood. So that's one type of parallelism. A second type is antithetical parallelism. And this is the opposite of synonymous. It's when the second half of the proverb says the opposite thought as the first half. Uh, so let's see, Proverbs 19.16. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. So here you have contrasted the one who keeps the commandment and the one who despises the commandment. Proverbs 16.8 is another good example. Better a little with righteousness than a large income with injustice. So here's a, a proverb that contrasts um, the, the righteous poor man with the unrighteous rich man. And the third one, the last parallelism I'll talk about is synthetic parallelism. And this is a bit different than the other two. It's when the second half of the proverb explains or builds up or intensifies what was said in the first half. Here's a good example. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So the first half of the proverb gives a statement, and then the second one explains why that's true. The reason to keep your heart with all vigilance, for... From it flow the springs of life. Or one, one last example here of parallelism. Proverbs 17.25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So that's an extension or a building up of the idea of the first part. First, he grieves his father, and then his mother is also made bitter. 
So that's a, some, a survey of these categories. Keep in mind that they're only meant to help guide us. When we actually read the Proverbs, we'll find that they don't always fit into our categories. And there's a lot of overlap between the categories too. Sometimes a proverb will have features of multiple types. So these are not straitjackets. These categories are tools to help us understand. That being said, John, out of the three types we listed, we have synonymous, we have antithetical, and we have synthetic parallelism. Excuse me, synthetic parallelism. I want to know which category do you think describes Proverbs 29:18 best? <laughs> yeah, really teed me up there, Jeremy. I would say this has to be antithetical parallelism. <laughs> now, kind of you, to, to parse it a little bit, the, the reason why I'm saying that is the whole first half of the verse is telling us, you know, what happens to people who are rejecting the prophetic vision. And, you, you know, you get this idea of this like casting off of restraint, this, this falling into anarchy. And that's being contrasted with what happens to people when they keep the law that they're you know blessed and so i think there's this sense in which you are getting this contrasting of of these these two pieces which is really kind of telling you a, a, a deeper truth about this this thing that is the law slash the prophetic vision and you know kind of the first half is what happens when you don't do it and the second half is like what happens when you do do it oh totally dude i agree i think it's a slam dunk textbook antithetical parallelism which is probably the only time I'll ever say that sentence, but <laughs> slam dunk, textbook, antithetical parallelism, for sure. The word but is a huge giveaway. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I mean, having just mentioned that the categories overlap a lot, I don't think there's much debate on this one. I think that's got to be the answer. But so we've already talked, I mean, we've talked a little bit about parallelism now and just some interesting features of Hebrew poetry, but I think this also helps us make sure we're on the right track with interpreting the verse. And I think my reasoning is that if the first half of the verse is about vision casting and the importance of following through on our personal dreams and goals, why does the second half of the Proverbs say, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction? In that case, the second half doesn't actually contrast with the first half, and then the word but doesn't mean anything. So, I mean, if it was about vision casting or setting goals, it should say something like, blessed is the one who keeps the goal in mind, or blessed is the one who doesn't lose focus. Um, but instead, it talks about keeping wisdom's instruction. So I think um, this really definitely reinforces our Hebrew study and uh, reinforces my disclaimer about not trusting Hebrew and Greek alone in our interpretation. Totally, Jeremy, because, you know, the idea is like whatever the Hebrew words mean, they have to like also make sense in the sentence that they're placed inside of, which is essentially what we're doing right here is we're looking at this this construct of parallelism that the the authors here in, in, in the Proverbs use. And we're saying like, well, OK, so wh whatever these Hebrew words mean, they need to also make sense in this this parallelism context. Uh and so as a result, you know, if, you know, we translate the, the you know, this word, uh, um, uh, yiparim, what is it? Yipara. Mm -hmm. Yipara. Okay. Okay. So you can tell I don't like know anything about Hebrew. Well, so if you translate it as perish, that like, well, it doesn't really make a, a whole lot of sense in, in, in the, in the parallelism construct here. I, I think the idea of this casting off of restraint works way better just in terms of the way that the sentence is constructed, because, you know, clearly the, you know, not keeping the law is going to lead to some kind of lawlessness, which is closer to this idea of casting off of restraint rather than 
I don't know, it feels like a bit of a stretch to just like directly go straight to perishing. Um, so, so anyway, so I, the, the point here is that our, you know, however we're translating these Hebrews, Hebrew words, they, it needs to be complementing as well the way that the sentences themselves are constructed. Sure. And hey, part of interpreting and translating the Bible is paying attention to context. If a word doesn't seem to make sense um, in, in some way or another, that does give us some reason to take a second look at it. Yeah, well, here, Jeremy. So in, in addition to then just the, the Hebrew words themselves and then, you know, the, the way that the sentence is actually constructed with this, you know, idea of parallelism, is there anything else in the Bible that we could, you know, bring to bear to help us really understand more what this verse is saying? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. I've got plenty. <laughs> um, so the book of Proverbs itself, just a little primer on it. It's composed of a number of different smaller collections of Proverbs that were written by various wise men and collected by various people. And they, these different collections have headers, so we know where they start. Um, so this section that 2918 is in actually starts all the way back in chapter 25, verse 1. And it's the second collection of Proverbs that Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. So that, that section title says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Well, that right there tells us some interesting things. Um, for those who know the history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting fact to know. Um, so Solomon wrote this proverb, or at least he adapted it from another source. Um, in some sense, it is his proverb, and it is written around the mid-900s B.C., there's debate about all these dates, but somewhere around there. And it was scribes who were working under King Hezekiah around 200 years after Solomon who collected it and placed it in this collection to later be included in the book of Proverbs. Now, the reason this is interesting to me is that Hezekiah was one of the last good kings of Judah. And John, if you can actually uh, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 through 8, and just read out that summary for us so we can learn more about Hezekiah. Sure. So 2 Kings 18 verses 3 through 8. And he, that is Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neheshton. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord commanded to Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. So he's a pretty cool dude, huh? Yeah, seriously, this is like glowing praise that's being given to Hezekiah here. <laughs> I mean, he's basically being put on par with David, who's, you know, he's like the biggest deal ever in terms of the kings of Israel. Yeah, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor those who were before him. So let me ask you a question, John. Hezekiah's scribes add this 200-year-old proverb to this collection. Why did they add this proverb? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And um, well, let, let's go through the timeline a little bit here, because here in Second Kings eighteen, Hezekiah is given all of this, you know, glowing praise. And so, in that sense, he's a bit of a high water mark for the kings of Judah. You know, because like most of the kings of Judah were just kind of meh dudes, honestly, and some of them were actually pretty terrible. In fact, like before Hezekiah, the 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 last king who was like truly good, who was actually, you know, praised in, you know, either Kings or Chronicles was Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was like 150 years before Hezekiah. So there's this huge gap between Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah where you just got all these kind of, well, meh kings and some, well, you know, really evil, terrible kings too. And so, you know, there really wasn't anybody who, you know, had like, quote, walked in the ways of David, his father, um, in like a really long time. Additionally, in the case of Hezekiah, he also witnessed the destruction of the Northern kingdom of Israel. So, you know, kind of a, a bit of a history lesson for you here. If you remember the, you know, after Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel gets divided into a Northern and a Southern kingdom. And, you know, so, so Hezekiah, he's actually the king of the, of the Southern kingdom of Judah. And, you know, in his reign, the Northern kingdom of Israel, this is around 722 BC or so actually gets like totally wiped out um, for disobeying God, like God brings judgment on the Northern kingdom, brings in a foreign conqueror, and he just like wipes the whole thing out. And so for Hezekiah, he like witnesses this wrath of God, uh, that's being, you know, like poured out on disobedience. And so, you know, on the one hand, he sees the, the prospering of his own nation, that, that, that he sees as he is like following the ways of the Lord. And he's also seen the destruction of the Northern kingdom who didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. So in a sense, this proverb really is kind of the epitome of what Hezekiah's life was that for him is, as he was delighting in the law of the Lord, he was blessed, but he saw in the Northern kingdom, those who had cast off this prophetic vision that they had rejected the prophets. And so they descended into anarchy and eventually were destroyed. Totally. I think you hit the nail on the head with, I mean, and, and we're guessing this is a little bit of, we're trying to psychologize whichever scribes um, added <laughs> this to the collection. Maybe they were just like, Hey, this was a good one. That's classic. Throw that in there. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe they were not thinking that carefully about it, but I still think it's interesting to point out just how relevant something like this is to the reign of Hezekiah the the virtues of of the king in his obedience to the prophetic vision and how he is blessed by it versus the catastrophe that befell the northern kingdom in his lifetime which he saw so it's also worth pointing out that by the way that there was at least some prophetic activity going on in Judah during the reign of Hezekiah Isaiah Micah and Hosea specifically are mentioned they mentioned in their own books serving at least part of their prophetic office during his reign. We actually quoted Isaiah 1.1 earlier when talking about Chazon, and he mentions Hezekiah, and possibly others as well, though these, these are the ones we know for sure. So in some, Hezekiah's reign was a moment of spiritual renewal uh, in which God's revelation was heeded. And in response, God greatly blessed Hezekiah and the whole people of Israel. Now, so we've dug into the historical context. We've talked about parallelism. We've talked about Hebrew you would be forgiven for thinking that uh, ultimately maybe the historical context isn't as important as those Hebrew word studies, but it does shed some light on 
the historical circumstances that gave rise to the Bible. Yeah. And I mean, not just that, I think it also gives us really clear illustrations of how these proverbs play out. And I, I think that begins pointing us to how we can begin to understand these proverbs and be applying them to our own lives. You know, so that we can take the good, true message of what the Proverbs really are telling us. It's time for the other meat. So with that, Jeremy, what are some applications that we can be drawing from this text? Sure. Well, let's start with the obvious one. Let's obey God. <laughs> I mean, let's start out, start out with like the really obvious. I mean, we've been talking about it for a while now. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the most clear-cut application of this whole thing is like, yeah, you, you, you should obey God, guys. But I think uh, for a second tip, uh, maybe a little more deep on this one, let's not be jealous of those who choose not to obey the commandments of God. I think sometimes, I've definitely experienced this in my own life, I think we can be envious of unbelievers because they have more freedom to do things that, you know, we are prohibited from doing. Um, But I think we should instead think of that freedom as a certain kind of slavery. And uh, only in following Christ are we truly free. And this verse tells us when a society ignores the law of God, it devolves into anarchy and chaos. The people cast off restraint and they lose not gain. They lose happiness. They lose blessedness. They lose a stable and rightly ordered society to live in. And they're in fact slaves to that unrestrained chaos. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Jeremy. Well, here, what's number three? Beyond just uh, obeying God, let's be thankful to him for the Bible. I mean, we have the words of the prophets and apostles preserved for us. We can read it um, like So let's be thankful for that. Just the the fact that God has given us his word to restrain those darker parts of us. Yeah. And, you know, how often are we really approaching God's word with that thankfulness? Because, I mean, you know, God didn't need to speak. He didn't need to communicate with us. And yet that is something that God has chosen to do. And not just you know, one person in history, but that God has chosen to preserve his words for us through the ages. And, you know, I I, I think we can just really be approaching God's word with deeper thanks for the wonderful gift that it truly is. Well, to extend it even further and keeping with what you were saying, uh, point four is not just to be thankful for the Bible, but be thankful for the translation of the Bible. Be thankful that the Bible exists in a language you understand, and not only that it exists, but that there's a huge variety of translations for you to compare with. We don't just have the King James Version, which as wonderful and blessed as the endeavor of those translators was, now we have other translations to compare it to. And that can really help us, especially we've seen this week, dig into the real meaning of the verse. We looked at Hebrew, but the only thing, I mean, the main thing that Hebrew was able to accomplish was just to demonstrate that the newer translations are right and are translating it pretty darn accurately. So the, the takeaway isn't necessarily that you need to go study Hebrew every day, although that would be a pretty awesome thing to do if that's the sort of person you are and you're a total dork like me. But the point being, you have every resource you need available to you. Take advantage of that. Read in multiple translations. Yeah, this is a, a wonderful time to be a Christian with just how many resources we have available to us, that God has been incredibly kind to us in giving us so many different Bible translations. And, you know, we should honor him by taking full advantage. 
Absolutely. And as a last point, once again, about the word, this is our fifth application tip. Read the whole word. Read the word holistically. Because as we've seen, translators may do their best, but sometimes it just doesn't come across the way they intended. Um, sometimes maybe the English word, just the translators didn't know that it would be mistaken. Or sometimes we just don't always know what the Hebrew and Greek means. There's debates about it. So I think the best way to avoid getting suckered into kind of like a bad interpretation um, of a verse like this, which sounds so plausible when you hear vision casting pastors talk this way, I think the best antidote is to just know the word well enough to be able to tell when something's not quite consistent with the message of scripture. I think in this case, for example, if you have an idea about, you know, the role of pastors and how they're supposed to be focusing on teaching the word, in other words, the chazon, the prophetic vision, um, the revelation of the prophets, uh, the command is that they're not supposed to lord it over their flock with like, oh, this is what we're going to do now, and, and you should all get on board with my vision. Um, no, it should be to teach the word of God. And even as it is a pastor's responsibility to teach the word of God, as people who are sitting in the pews, it's our responsibility to be hearing the word of God. And as you say, Jeremy, hearing all of what God has to say to us. Now, and that's really our encouragement to all of you today who are listening to hear all of what God has to say to you in the words of scripture. And that's really what Proverbs twenty nine eighteen is encouraging you to do, to cherish the prophetic vision, to keep God's law. And in that, you will be blessed. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, Jeremy, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things that Paul says which are hard to understand. But both Paul and the rest of the biblical authors, including the scribes under Hezekiah who kept this proverb preserved for us, there are plenty of things that they all said which are, in fact, really quite easy to understand. So let's just sit for a moment in the simple wisdom of Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How refreshing. God's word instructs us in what the right path is. It illuminates a way through the darkness. And if we keep to that path, we'll be blessed by God, just like Proverbs 29:18 teaches. So, let's be thankful for God's word. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you so much for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Uh, alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>